As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to Matters of Life and Death. Thanks for joining us. As always, I'm Tim White and I'm joined by my dad, John White. Hi, Dad. Hi, Tim. And we're picking up our conversation from last week where we started discussing this idea of surveillance capitalism. Uh, Quick refresher for those who don't remember, surveillance capitalism is a kind of idea which refers to uh, a kind of interconnected political economic system created by um, big tech companies, uh, which centers on kind of harvesting personal data uh, as we use their sensibly otherwise free products and then selling and using that data to uh, post increasingly intrusive advertising and ultimately manipulate our behavior for the benefit of uh, making profit. Um, Was that all right? Is that a good kind of elevator pitch? It's it's a very hard thing to define, isn't it? Because it's it's like almost like, you know, asking a fish to define what it means to live in water. (laughs) This is just absolutely ubiquitous, isn't it? Swimming in this suit. We're swimming in it and and it's almost invisible to us. But yeah, it's about surveillance. And it's primary use to make obscene sums of money for um, advertisers and technology companies. But of course, I'm interested in this surveillance is not just being used by these companies, but also by governments around the world, because they've discovered that exactly the same technology, which is used to track you and work out where you've been, um, so they can sell and advertise to you and manipulate your behavior. That's extremely valuable information for governments. Mm. And it's well known that China in particular has become uh, extremely, using very extremely sophisticated uh, surveillance technology. Um, it has a number of capitalist companies in China doing the same kind of thing that Silicon Valley companies do. But unlike those, it has a much more overt relationship with the Chinese Communist Party. And uh, there's lots of evidence showing how they are using the same kind of technology for basically for social control, which is what communist governments have always wanted to try to do to understand what every member of society is doing, and ensure that what they're doing is not against the interests of the of the Communist Party. And, and uh, this technology gives the most unbelievably powerful tools to authoritarian governments i mean people are familiar with you know under the the uh the 20th century form of communism you know eastern european 
the Soviet Union countries, they had extensive kind of surveillance networks where they would, you know, use analog technology to bug people's apartments and listen in on private conversations. And what we're seeing in the 21st century is another form of communism, the kind of bizarro, hyper-capitalistic, yet authoritarian communism espoused by the Chinese Communist Party, which is now, you know, it's not installing little radio listening devices in your apartment. It's just looking at everything that you're tapping on your smartphone screen. It's watching everything that you're emailing. It's hoovering up all the data about where you're going, you know, in China, particularly exacerbated by the pandemic. But even before there was, it's quite ubiquitous sense of when you go into public spaces or restaurants or shops, you often scan QR codes. And part of that during the pandemic was to show that you weren't kind of COVID positive or whatever. But it also means that there is an exact record on a government accessible database um, where they can see where every citizen is going, who they are meeting up with. Um, oh, this person has left their city where they normally live and has gone to another place and they're met up with this other person. And, you know, you can see how that's incredibly useful for suppressing kind of political opposition but also that kind of just granular, fine-tuned, just sense of oppressive sense of everything is being watched, everything is under scrutiny, you're never truly alone, you're never truly private. Yeah, one of the fascinating things, isn't it, that the, the smartphone now becomes the most dangerous thing for the dissident or for anyone who might be mm. regarded as having a, a difference with their government because your smartphone contains absolutely all the information about who you're in contact with, where you've been, what posts you've been making, what even what apps you have. You know, I've yeah. heard stories of people we've have heard of the the tragic genocide that China's perpetuating against Uyghur Muslims in, in Xinjiang. And one of the things they often do is is they're trying to stamp out expressions of kind of Muslimness. And, you know, Uyghur Muslims have learned, you know, they've got to shave their beards and not wear Islamic clothing, but often they get pulled over at checkpoints and the first things that the, the state security forces will do is look at your phone and see if you have a, a Quran app on your phone. You know, mm. something as innocent mm. as that yeah. is is incriminating enough to get sent off to a re-education camp. Apparently similar things happening in the war in Ukraine. Where, um, you know, there's a lot of worry about informers on both sides and the, the military authorities are insisting that they check through your smartphone. Uh, because it's it was, it's so incriminating. Yeah. Uh, there was another twist that um, uh, it was particularly concerning is that it seems so often it's journalists in authoritarian regimes who, who are being targeted, isn't it? So yeah. your profession is one of the most vulnerable and dangerous professions. And um, there was a whole thing about the use of software called Pegasus, wasn't it, and the ability to um, interrogate someone's smartphone. Yeah, that was a scandal a year or two ago where an Israeli firm was found, had developed this software called Pegasus, which is exceptionally powerful spyware, which is able to to kind of penetrate the security built into um, even iPhones, which are kind of historically the most kind of secure brand of phone you can have, where they would, um, original version of software, they would just send a, send a text a message, a text message to someone, if you, as long as you had their phone number, the person didn't even have to open the message. Just as soon as it landed on their phone, it, it exploited holes in the software and allowed the person using Pegasus to read your texts, to listen to your voicemails, to observe you in real time as you tap on, on, on different apps as you write things. And, you know, the theory was, oh, we're just going to give this to, you know, the CIA and, and Mossad and kind of reputable Western intelligence agencies while they're tra- targeting terrorists. But the scandal came out that actually this Israeli company had sold it to governments like Saudi Arabia and Tunisia um, 
And it got into the hands of some quite bad people who had used it to target, as you say, very often journalists. I think infamously, even Jamal Khashoggi, the the Washington Post columnist who was executed, who was um, assassinated by the Saudi regime for his dissident journalism, um, uh, and other journalists have, have found that, uh, that that you know all they needed was your phone number. That's all they needed, and then they basically could look inside your phone and turn your own smartphone into a kind of a, a, a bug on your life. And of course, uh, there's all this evidence that Western governments have also been involved in hoovering up vast amounts of our data and using it. And it's pretty obvious, isn't it? If Google can work out what your political affiliations are, what your religious views are, where you live, what, what, how you spend your money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that any government is going to be extremely interested in that kind of information as well. Yeah. And they would be mad not to be using the same kind of technology. I mean, could you, you could even argue that potentially it's, it would be um, a dereliction of their duty, you know, if, if the bad guys have this information, if the Silicon Valley tech companies have this information, can GCHQ or America's NSA, these spy agencies who are tasked with, you know, finding the bad guys and preventing terrorist threats and attacks on, on us, it, would it be a direction duty for them not to tap into this this firehose of data and use it for their own ends? And I, I think that brings us on to this question about privacy, doesn't it? Whether or not, I mean, so often... Uh, the the standard response to this, which has come both from Christians and from, you know, civil society quotes from uh, classic liberals and other people, has been that uh, this is outrageous. We have, as citizens, we surely have a right of privacy. I mean, it's one of our human rights. And uh, we must insist that we're able to live our lives uh, without other people knowing what we're doing, without governments or uh, tech companies or anybody, um, privacy is a fundamental human right. And it's it's a compelling, I find it in personally quite a compelling case, you know, that, that, you know, the argument goes, if you've got nothing to hide, you've got nothing to fear. But, but the reality is, is that actually, we'd all feel deeply uncomfortable if, the intimate contents of our digital lives. You know, this is no longer just, you know, people live their lives through their smartphones, through their Gmail accounts, through their WhatsApp messenger app. You know, they're sending deeply, deeply private stuff that they don't want anyone else to find out. And the idea that it is sitting accessible on some government server somewhere is deeply unsettling. Yeah, and I find myself very conflicted on this, you know, because obviously as a medic, right from, you know, medical school days, we're all trained in the importance of medical confidentiality. And that is a very, very important principle of medical ethics. Interestingly, it goes back all the way to Hippocrates, the Hippocratic uh, group of pagan physicians back several hundred years before Christ. And the original Hippocratic Oath uh, actually says something like, I will keep every information about my patients as a most holy secret, and I will not divulge it to anybody else on pain of death. And so, you know, those early physicians recognised that medical information was incredibly, could be incredibly damaging if this was released. And, and therefore... The physician has an ethical duty to maintain strict confidentiality. And that, that still happens through to today. But, you know, the other side of it is if you think back to life in a village, as it must have been all the way until urbanization starts, I suspect that privacy was a bit of a myth. I, I think that 
in your village, everybody knows what everybody's going on. I mean, think of Miss Marple, look, you know, <laughs> looking <laughs> under <laughs> underneath the lace curtains to see who's who's going off to whom and who's who's having an affair with who. So it's not until you get urbanisation of people living in large uh, uh, conurbations that it becomes possible that I can actually shut my door and go behind my closed door and nobody knows because I've now got anonymity. I'm living in a large city. That's and the thing. Maybe... Privacy is really an outworking of the alienation of, of kind of contemporary industrialised society because, you know, it, as you say, not only does everyone in a village is privacy impossible, but also everyone has grown up together and so they are intimately known and know everyone around them. Whereas it's only when the rural people start up sticks and move into some anonymous terraced block quickly thrown up to, to work in the factory. And they're side by side with people from other parts of the country from hundreds of miles away who they are complete strangers to. And you have these brick walls and these tiny windows. And, and, and really it's it, that kind of anonymity and the alienation from each other enables a, the idea the modern conception of a private individual life to develop whether that's a positive thing is a, probably a separate question but also maybe it was just a phase in the development of society and it, it happened to last for you know a couple of centuries when uh, urbanization started and yet technology hadn't advanced uh, and maybe we've now got to a stage where even though we're all now or most of us are urbanized uh, the technology is now we're back in the digital village. Everybody knows everybody's business. Everything is open to us. And maybe we just have to accept. Maybe that this, it seems to me that the quest for privacy is almost like a longing, a romantic longing for a sort of agrarian age, a, a previous, uh, some romantic idea of the past, which I suspect has, has gone forever. I think there's definitely elements of truth to that. But I would counter by saying the key distinction between hyper modern, late capitalistic lack of privacy that we experience today and the lack of privacy in a kind of pre-industrial um, agrarian village is that in the village, it's only a tiny number of people, a few hundred at most, who have this intimate knowledge about your whereabouts and who you're sleeping with and what you're eating and what and all that kind of stuff. Whereas today, we're saying potentially that the digital technology allows agglomeration and scale that is unimaginable. You know, it's one thing for all your neighbours to know intimate details about your personal life. But it's another thing for your government, the ruling authority, let alone a distant tech company in another country, to have accumulated this knowledge about you. And I think we have to think about the, as you talked about last week, the power imbalance. You know, there was a there was a demo, there was a democraticness of the the unprivate village because democracy. You, there was a democraticness. <laughs> democracy. Yes, God. Carry there was on. a democracy <laughs> about the un the the unprivate village the public life because it was it was shared you knew your neighbor and your neighbor knew your life but today anonymous government bureaucrat at gchq or tech worker in silicon valley knows everything about my life and i don't even know that they exist no i accept that i mean i think i think that's absolutely right it's just that i find it very hard to imagine how you go back you know how you once these things are learned, there's, a, there's a, this extraordinary thing about technology, isn't it? Is that it it has this degree of irreversibility. Um, once we live in a world where there are surveillance cameras everywhere, where GPS is constantly, you know, satellites are logging on, where we're logging into masts, uh, mobile phone masts, where, you know, 
my number plate as soon as I get in my car is being tracked and monitored and so on. How how do you go back to a um, a situation, a, a way of living where nobody knows what anybody else is doing? I I find it very hard to imagine. Apart unless you do take the sort of Amish view, you say we're going to take this little area in the in the uh, in the states. We're going to map it out. This is going to be our place. We're going. To, it's going to be. But even then, of course, it wouldn't be. You, the, the surveillance cameras. You can't stop um, external surveillance. So it it seems to me the question then shifts to given that this kind of surveillance is is a reality and is going to continue then it's who holds who holds the power who who decides what this data is being used for it is being collected we can't stop it being collected but in a democratic society we can have some some uh, say in how my data is being used yeah i think that's true and the Amish is a good example because ultimately i think most people wouldn't want to turn the clock back to in a pre-industrial agrarian idyll because you would not only be you would no longer have facebook scraping your your data but you also wouldn't have you know any of the other accoutrements of modern capitalistic life this is in many ways that what we live in today is the logical inevitable outworking of capitalism itself you know i think one of the most intriguing things i was read researching for this about surveillance capitalism was the idea that actually we focus on the surveillance but the key is really the capitalism you know it's the modern system of of you know the private free enterprise and accumulation of profit that has driven these companies to create these systems of surveillance and data harvesting because it makes them a lot of money and ultimately why does it make them money because advertisers pay them to do it why do advertisers have that money to pay them because we buy the advertisers products it all comes back to us the consumer we are the bottom of the pyramid and it is our you know, you could argue rapacious overconsumption, which has generated the wealth, which has now been used to target our lives for surveillance. You're listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Yeah, and, and this is deeply confusing and troubling isn't it because um capitalism has many uh, faults and so on but it has led to the most extraordinary growth in living standards improvement in health in social welfare uh, increasing longevity um and so on and um and yet particularly once you're into this kind of consumerist capitalism it's all about the manipulation of desire. Ultimately, what adverts do is they are designed to generate discontent. They're designed to tap into your desires and say, you know what, I really need X, Y, Z, and I feel dissatisfied. I feel unhappy with what I've got, you know, whatever it is, I need that new thing. And, you know, I can sense in myself how well it works you know, where my vulnerabilities to a nice new piece of tech or to this wonderful new book, you know, which Google seems to have worked out with extraordinary, and Amazon with, you know, extraordinary ability of how exactly the kind of books that I'm going to desire mm-hmm. or the kind of tech which will appeal to me. And so this, this then the question is, what is all this doing to me as a human being and to me as a, as a, as a follower of Christ? 
Yeah. And I think that's, for me, perhaps a more compelling critique of surveillance capitalism. While, you know, I'm not ecstatic about the loss of privacy and that kind of thing. I think I'm more concerned by this idea of how it is corrupting us, potentially even, you know, marring the image of God in us. It is playing into our kind of most broken insecurities, our avaricious desires. It is ratcheting up our anxiety and insecurity, as we talked about last week. Uh, you know, it, it's this endless pit of we're never fulfilled, and yet we keep coming back to the well to, of these apps, but they never, they never truly satisfy. Um, it, it's, and it creates this kind of. Um, it's kind of it, it instrumentalizes it. It turns human beings into means, not ends. It kind of strips us of our dignity, and we're just an accumulation of billions of data points that can be chopped up, marketed, sold to a data broker, gone through three three different middlemen, and then farted back at us in the face of some vacuous product mass produced in some Chinese warehouse by wage slaves. And you know, it, it really is quite dehumanizing in a way. I think it really is dehumanizing, and and again, it is also runs completely antithetical to the Christian virtue of contentment. You know, that um, this idea that being contented with my lot is a fundamental Christian sense. Contentment with godliness is great gain. Um, I, and, um, and yet, from a consumerist capitalist point of view, contentment is a disaster if everybody was contented <laughs> the entire structure of um of consumerist economics would would crash and burn uh, we need people to be discontented we need people to be longing and desiring for whatever it is whatever taps into their their values their longings and so on so th that's a deeply troubling thought isn't it absolutely and i think that really ties into what is quite well established now, which is how detrimental the surveillance capitalism ecosystem is to our mental health, particularly for the, for the younger people. You know, it's well established that the more time, you know, teenagers spend on, on apps like Instagram and Facebook, the greater the likelihood they will develop, you know, depression and anxiety. And, and we all kind of wring our hands about that and, you know, have a lot of intense social debate what to do about that but fundamentally it's 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 largely because these apps are as you say they are designed not only to be addictive but to be unfulfilling and to keep drawing us back and to keep never quite fully satisfying that itch playing into our neuroses and our brokenness um it's particularly this sort of bizarre effect of watching other people having a great time isn't yeah. it so watching other people having this most amazing family and a holiday or mm. experiences or eating this amazing meal, the effect on us is, again, to stimulate envy, to stimulate discontent. Yeah. What would we call FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's really this modern language for, as you say, the kind of pride of the sin of, of envy and jealousy. And we all know in our heads that what we see online is fake because we also know that when we take pictures of our food, <laughs> it looks better on the picture than it actually did on the plate. But for somehow we delude ourselves when another person takes a picture of their, you know, beautiful wife and, and child on this glorious beach holiday. It truly is as idyllic as that filter has made it appear. Mm. And mm. it's cropping out, you know, the stretch marks and the screaming <laughs> and the sunburn <laughs> and the you know pollution in the beach behind them and all the other stuff. And it's beautifully, you know, filtered and cropped. 
And even though we do this ourselves, we present and curate this artificialized yeah. version of our life, we somehow cannot stop ourselves from believing that everyone else actually is living their best life. And why am I missing out? And why am I sad? And why is my family not match up to that ideal? And why is my body doesn't look like that? And why can't I look like that? You know, and it just nags and so, nags and nags. So I, I think before we totally depress ourselves, let's, <laughs> let's spend the last few minutes just uh, reflecting on Christian responses and, mm. and positive rules. Um, I think um, f- from an individual point of view, one of the uh, really interesting ideas is that we need to rediscover this idea of a rule of life, um, a, a daily rhythm to um, life, which which pushes back against this addictive, uh, always-on digital culture, which is damaging us. And, and we instead go back to these ancient practices of, of, of imposing a, a rhythm on every day. Do you think that there's something in that? Do you think, do you, do you, what about yourself? Are you going to adopt a, a rule of life, Tim? You want me to become a monk? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I you mean, do have a child. I don't yeah, that, <laughs> yeah, that is, yeah, it is challenging. Um, I think there is, I'm, I mean, I'm fascinated by the kind of surge of interest, including outside the church, actually, in kind of, benedictine spirituality which is all you know deriving from saint benedict the guy who invented the the rule of life in the medieval era and kind of the modern idea of 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 monasticism you know you see lots of businesses talking about benedictine and all that stuff i think it is intriguing and i think there's certainly truth in the idea which actually christians have always known which is that our broken sinful world has a corrupting influence and part of our spirituality has to be about building defenses against being dragged along with you know i mean paul writes about that you know do not let your minds be conformed to the ways of this world and and so i think what christians have learned over many years often sometimes called the spiritual disciplines you know habits like daily prayer meditation worship silence you know all these things um richard foster wrote the definitive book on this uh is are, are these are practical habits and ways rhythms that that people have found over the years do help them you know, embody the virtues and the values that they seek, derive ultimately from the person of Jesus and avoid being just swept up in in whatever the world has to offer. So yeah, I think there's definitely value in that. It feels ambitious to live that way in, in, in contemporary life when well, you're not I, actually a medieval monk. <laughs> yes, and particularly when both of us have had professions, you in, in news, me in medicine, which really cut across a sort of really nice nine to five, five mm. days a week, you know, yeah. uh, because the news cycle is 24 seven medicine works 24 seven shift patterns yeah. and so on. So, so I think that it, how you implement some kind of rule of life in this kind of really chaotic shift based uh, working practices is a, is a huge question, but I do intuitively sense that a lot of this is right, that we somehow have to wrest control away from the technology. I'm speaking to myself as much as to anybody else and to try to implement regular practices, uh, over the day and, and also uh, like over a week. So the idea of having special times, you know, digital fasting, maybe the idea that the you know, when we meet together as Christians, this should be a safe space away from technology. Hmm. You know that that hand your phone in at the door of church. Yeah, exactly. And 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 we are uh, somehow protected from from it. I think 
the other thing finally has become the end is this is a huge issue for parents, isn't it? And, you know, you must be looking at your young daughter and thinking, you know, what are we going to do with technology? How are you going to protect your daughter from um, the the ravages of, of of capitalism? There is some interesting work. Again, we're going to put it in, in some books and other writings in this area. We're going to put some links into the notes for this um, episode. But um, the idea of um, developing families which um, have practices to try um, and push back against the smartphone i think the really interesting idea is that in order to try and wean their children off the digital devices parents have to make home time family time time spent together even more interesting even more exciting even more attractive than this world out there which is constantly wanting to suck your children into it yeah and it's certainly something that i am you know, trying to think about now as a as a young father and, and realising even at two and a half that our daughter is absolutely fascinated, entranced by anything with a screen. You know, even this morning she was playing with the, you know, the monitor that we use to look at her while she sleeps, you know. It's just anything with a screen, anything that lights up and has noise and, and, and is is completely, even at that age, is somehow hacking into the neural networks of her brain and it is becoming quite addictive. But then you realise, actually, hang on, where is she learning this? She's learning this from me because I sit on my, on the sofa while I'm spending time with her, but I'm really checking Twitter and reading the news and checking up my emails and my WhatsApps. And so, yeah, I think there's enormous uh, value. I'm, I haven't remotely even begun to achieve this in, in as a family setting a pattern. You know, classic examples are, you know, don't charge your phone in the same room where you sleep. Uh, you know, have kind of Sabbath times from your devices uh, you know, develop habits where it may be on a, a certain hour in the evening or a, a day a week where everyone puts their phones away or, or whatever it is. None of this is easy, particularly for someone, you know, where I can't really Sabbath a lot of the time because my phone and my laptop are in central to how I do my job, which also is from home. Um, so it is tricky. But yeah, I think it's certainly something that our generation of kind of parents is cannot avoid because I think they're you can see from a terrifyingly young age just how effective the surveillance capitalists have done at making their devices, their apps, their products completely enthralling um, yeah. to young minds. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting and important topic and it'd be good to come back to it in a future episode and maybe invite someone on as a guest who's got uh, special expertise in this area. But uh, I, I think it seems to me that as Christian people, we're, we're right at the beginning. I mean, this 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 wave of stuff has hit us and we're only just beginning to get our heads around what's going on and how on earth to try to to respond but it, but it is happening and i and i'm really quite excited and encouraged to see these new initiatives and and i hope we'll be able to explore that in in future episodes definitely and we haven't got time to go into any depth but I, just as a far, as a parting thought i stumbled across some christians writing about surveillance capitalism and, and they said ultimately we need to resist the the allure of disembodiment and kind of return to embodiment uh you know digital technology is all about as we talked about de dehumanizing and, and alienating ourselves and you know broadcasting ourselves to the masses but jesus god came as a single person completely finite limited as one man in one place in history um for just a few years um and and there's something intrinsic to our spirituality i think as jesus followers which is to just to 
to mark our lives after that and embrace our, our finitude, our limitedness, um, and, and kind of resist the allure of, of the kind of infinite always-on projection that, that digital technology suggests. Yeah, absolutely. And isn't it most profound and, and fascinating that, that the most central act of, of Christian worship, which is the breaking of bread, the Eucharist, the communion, is the physical sharing together of a group of people we are one body because we all share in one bread that and and that cannot be digitized that is that is something that you have to do in the flesh Brilliant. All right. Well, I hope that's kind of scratched the surface, at least of some of the, the big ideas. Um, we're really interested to hear any of your thoughts on on what you think about surveillance capitalism, uh, what it's taking from us. Should we fear it? Um, how can we respond well as Christians? Please do get in touch. Uh, Molad, M-O-L-A-D at premier.org.uk. Uh, we'll put some links of further reading in, in the notes of this podcast, but there's also plenty to read on, on tech and how it's kind of shaping our society on john's website that's uh, johnwyatt.com um, and we'll be back next week with another episode but until then goodbye hello tim here just before we go i wanted to let you know we're planning a special episode in the next month or so to mark the one-year anniversary of relaunching matters of life and death as part of the premier unbelievable network we're going to be dedicating an episode, or maybe even two, to answering questions from you, our listeners. They can be on any topic, perhaps something you've heard us talk about over the last year that you'd like to go deeper into, or maybe instead there's a new development in the news or science that you'd be interested to hear us chat about. We can't promise to answer every question we get, but we're definitely going to try to squeeze in as many as possible into this special Omnibus episode. Nothing's out of bounds, so do get in touch now by emailing molad, M-O-L-A-D, at premiere.org.uk. Thanks very much. You've been listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information.